0: welcome everyone to this podcast I have with me author Paula Houston and she has a delightful new book A season of mystery and we're going to spend the next hour or so talking about that um, that book um, welcome Paula thank
1: you very much
0: so let me read a little bit of, of introductory material for those of you who, who don't know about Paula or her work Paula Houston wrote literary fiction for more than 20 years before shifting her focus to spirituality. She is the author of the critically acclaimed novel Daughters of Song from Random House, 1995, which the Baltimore Sun called far and away the best book yet about life in the classical piano world at Peabody Conservatory. Nominated for the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco's gold medal for best first novel, it was also chosen by the Christian Science Monitor for its first Novelist debut review and selected by the Music Book Society and Performing Arts Book Club. Her short stories have appeared in numerous literary quarterlies, including American Short Fiction, North American Review, Missouri Review, Massachusetts Review, Virginia Quarterly Review Story, and, and a number of others, and were twice selected for the Best American Short Stories list. And and I was delighted to read, Paula, that you are a National Endowment for the Arts Fellow. You've served on the National Screening Committee for Fulbright Awards in Creative Writing. It says here she taught writing and literature at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I, I lived in the Bay Area for, for many years, and it's a... San Luis Obispo is a delightful part of the country. And you served Mm -hmm. as a core faculty member of the California State University Consortium MFA in creative writing for many years. And it says you are currently teaching creative nonfiction in the Seattle Pacific low-residency MFA program. Um, Let's see, then a little bit more. And I hope I pronounced this right. um, A Camel Deleese Benedictine mm-hmm. oblet? <laughs> go ahead. Very go <laughs> good. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you got it almost. Camaldolese Benedictine. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it's a branch of um, the Benedictines that goes back about a thousand years. So.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and as I recall, if I'm remembering correctly, because I, I live um, for many years, I went to Stanford and I lived in the Bay Area for, for 20 years, and there are, um, I. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, are there, are, are there a number of the, the monasteries up and down the California coast, or am I thinking of something else?
1: No, you're, you are right that there is a small satellite uh, monastery in Berkeley. That's probably the one you're thinking of, a Camaldolese monastery, mm-hmm. with only three, three or four monks at a time that live there. The larger uh, house in the U.S. is down the coast from where you were in Big Sur. And uh, that's called New Camaldoli Hermitage, which was uh, planted there over 50 years ago now by a group of monks who came over from Italy, from the mother house in Italy, which is called Camaldoli. And um, they were searching and searching in America for a site that would remind them of home. And, uh, you know, traditionally, this has been an order of hermits. And so they... Have always lived in the wilderness or they try to find areas that are sort of isolated. And, uh, of course, the Big Sur coast was perfect for them. So, um, that's, that's probably who you're thinking of. And that, uh, Camald- new Camaldoli hermitage in Big Sur is quite well known and they have, you know, a guest house there and people come from actually around the world to make retreats there. So, uh, you're not far off, but there's only two of those on the California coast. Okay. One little, yeah, one little small house in, uh, very small, in upstate New York of three or four nuns, Camaldolese nuns lived there. And otherwise, that's it for the whole United States.
0: Okay. I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of other monasteries then. Um,
1: yes, probably. Uh-huh. Okay. Um,
0: And so what does it mean to be a Camaldolese Benedictine Benedictine oblate?
1: Yeah, that's a question I get asked a lot. That term oblate is an ancient term, and it originally meant gift or offering. Um, you know, monasticism in Christianity has been around now for over fifteen hundred years, and um, slowly developed over the centuries. But essentially, has remained very much the same. Uh, most most Christian monks follow the rule of Saint Benedict, which was written in the 500s and um, it's basically just a, a kind of structure for one's life it's, they describe it as sort of like a uh, trellis on which you can grow better <laughs> you know if you can if you can incorporate some of these daily practices into your life which we're very familiar with from Buddhism various you know, other religions in the world. We don't think about that so much with Christianity, but this is very ancient in Christianity. And so back back centuries ago, oblates used to be children that were brought to the monastery when they were young. They were raised among the monks. They were intended to become monks or nuns. And uh, now, of course, for a number of years, they no longer do that. You have to be an adult of a certain age to be able to make that choice on your own the term itself lingers on and now refers to lay people who um, in some way or another find their way to a monastery, uh, begin making regular retreats there, um, slowly become, you know, establish some relationships, friendships with the monks, the community itself, and then choose to go deeper with that by beginning to do some study. It took me a couple of years of reading books that they recommended and sometimes they're very ancient books like the rule of St. Benedict and just testing that out in your own life and seeing if this is something that would be a good trellis for you to grow on, you know, and most of us out here in the world are so incredibly busy and so burdened with um, tremendous amounts of responsibility that this is a, often a very tricky thing to do, trying to incorporate certain sorts of monastic practices into a normal American postmodern life, you know. But once you have tested that out for a couple of years and done the reading and talking with the monks about it, um, those who want to pursue it, go ahead and make a vow, just a very simple vow that it's to the best of my ability. I will try to follow, you know, incorporate the spirit of the rule of St. Benedict into my normal daily life and remain connected with the monastic community. And there's a second little rule that goes with that, which is a rule having to do with um, daily practice of silence and uh, if possible, solitude. um, Because this is a contemplative order, which means they spend a lot of time in silent prayer. And so those those two things are if you really take those two rules seriously, they're guaranteed to totally blow your life to smithereens. <laughs> and that's really what happened to me, and pretty much all the other oblates I know. We we think we're doing something very kind of quiet and private, and we don't realize the implications of taking that into our lives are enormous. And um, so that's what an oblate is. And you know, you continue to be married. You continue to be in my case a a mom and a grandmother and maintain all the relationships you have uh, in the world, but you do it with a kind of constant awareness that you're part of this this ancient tradition and do your best, you know? Sometimes you're a monumental failure at it, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a wonderful thing. I've been in, i now for almost 15 years, so it really has shaped my life in ways I never would have predicted. It's
0: it's I'm I'm very intrigued by everything that that you're saying. In in particular, I am going to be um, 50 in December, and I've I've mm-hmm. always thought of myself as, as someone who hasn't been so attached to the material world, and, and someone who's had an awareness and continues to have an awareness of spirituality, of of something beyond, of something other going on than what what we're all doing you know running around and and collecting things in this material world and i've realized that um i think i'm not as as innocent and as advanced as i think i am because i have certainly been pulled by by many of life's draws but but as i you know as as i as i go into the second half of my life consciously i realize that i'm not going to be here forever and and then when i picked up your book there was something that called to me about um and i'm i'm not sure i can quite put it into words but the i'll try the the whole idea that there really is something more important and that a contemplative a mindful or reflective life really can offer us something and in particular I, I would expect that a lot of us as we age and and maybe have gathered up all the shiny objects and um you know have had the successes of life and are wondering you know there's got to be more than this um mm-hmm. i would i would imagine a lot of us baby boomers are very um more receptive than we were 10 or 20 years ago to what you have to say
1: yeah, I think um it's a it's kind of a classic existential moment. I think um it's not, you know, peculiar to any one religious practice or even culture. Uh I think that there's a point in at least in the lives of reflective people when they suddenly say is this all there is, you know? And it's a it's a painful point. I mean, that's I think why so much of uh, our time in in this particular day and age is spent simply distracting ourselves from having to look at those kind that kind of big question. <laughs> is this all there is? Uh, we'd rather just switch our minds off because they're so tired from all the hustle and bustle during the day, and keeping up with the giant to do list and meeting all the obligations that we feel perfectly justified and just switching off when we do have a little downtime and allowing ourselves to be entertained. We're totally surrounded by, you know, those kinds of options. I mean, they're everywhere. And so it it just, what it does is it keeps, continues to hold at bay that moment of truth. And so the contemplative life, to take it up uh, kind of seriously and commit yourself to it, it does require your... A certain amount of courage, and I tell you, I didn't realize that ahead of time. I was, I was very drawn to it. And as soon as I met the monks for the very, I've been going to the monastery for about 22 years now, and I went for nearly 10 years before I decided to become an oblate. And I was just, they just magnetized me, you know, with their their strange alternative lifestyle. It was really hmm. simple, you know, possession free um, kind of a purposely anonymous. I mean, everything I thought was important um, was kind of the exact opposite of what they were doing, and I found it incredibly attractive and, uh, you know, couldn't get enough of it. But when it came down to trying to um, face the kinds of issues that they have to face in order to live that life, wow, I didn't realize how rough that was going to be. And I think one of the reasons that old age in our culture is such a difficult time for people is sometimes that's the first time in their whole adult lives. They have had the leisure or maybe now it's an enforced leisure to sit and think, you know, and to, and these, these questions, they don't leave, they come back and all of a sudden it's just them and they're old and they've lost their powers and they're facing death and they aren't ready for that, you know, cause they haven't, they haven't done the, the the thinking they should have probably done in years before. Um, they haven't prepared themselves for it, and so it's a it can be a really traumatic time for older people. Right. Um, I think, yeah. So, anyway, I probably got you off the track at this point. No, <laughs> I no. forgot where we were headed.
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm actually enjoying this this um, conversation, whatever whatever direction it it goes in. Um, and, and I, and I also want to say that something that drew me very strongly to your book, I think it was, um, very early in the book, maybe in in the first section, um, first chapter, it, it, um, you talk about one of the, the myths that, that the purpose of life is to get what I most want before I die, and and when I read that, I, um, I think I, I think that was on your website, perhaps, or on on a review somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm remembering, remembering the quote correctly, I realize I had to read the entire book because you articulated something that I have known for the longest time that that not very many people are willing to say because if you go to somebody and and you say hey i'm questioning this this idea that, that life is about getting what i most want people are are going to say well you're nuts i mean what else you know life is about uh-huh. being happy i mean we don't ever uh-huh. question that life yeah. is about being comfortable and um um but anyway i um i'm going to come back to to this because i want to i want to ask you um to speak to this myth but before i do that um you know I had a little bit of more from from your website about about this book A Season of of Mystery but but rather than reading it if you wouldn't mind I would love for you to tell our listeners what the book is about.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's uh basically I um Trying as realistically as I can because I'm still, in some ways, I feel like I'm cheating or jumping the gun because I'm now 61. I'm very, thank heavens, I'm very, very healthy for my age. You know, I can still do pretty much all the things that I've always been able to do. I'm starting to feel a few twinges here and there. But, you know, I'm clearly not yet uh, having to deal with the kind of physical decay or um, the huge slowdown that takes place, you know, eventually in old age. And I have a, a very, um I'm surrounded by a loving family, so there's not the loneliness factor that so many people are facing. So I feel a little bit like um I might be, you know, speaking too soon about this issue. On the other hand, I have really been very deeply involved in the old age decline and illness and death of parents and in-laws over the last 10 years. And um, in fact, just in the last three, well, six months now, m- my mother died in late December right at Christmas time of cancer. And, and uh, my siblings, my sisters and I wound up doing all the care for her. We never had any professional care. We took care of her in her apartment. All five of us were with her the night she died, um, you know, we washed her body when it was over. We even wound up being the people who helped the mortician wrap her in the shroud and literally carry her out of the room because she hadn't brought a person along to help him. And so I was very, you know, very much involved in this whole cycle of uh, decline and death. And then my father-in-law, who we also were caring for, um, very close by, died just about a month and a half ago. And both Mike and I, my husband and I were with him through that whole night, you know, and right up to the moment when um he clearly did die and then continued to be in a very deep coma for a few hours more. But there was a there was a passing that took place when both of us had our hands on his face. So you know, I've I've really been very up close and personal with the, the what it entails to get to be this old. Uh, my mom was 85. My my father-in-law was 91. I helped uh, another 85-year-old friend die of cancer a few months before my mom died, and she was a very dear friend and oblate friend. So I, you know, I've I I can see what's ahead, um, and I've been able to see how. Enough people now have died in my life recently that of old age that I've been able to see how differently uh, they've handled this and how what has helped them to handle it with some courage and you know even even enjoy part of the adventure of it versus the folks that are just defeated by it and I yes. guess that that's what i the reason that I wanted to write the book and and I really felt when I began thinking it through that the people who seem to handle it best and just, um, just make the assumption that this was, you know, going to be happening to them like it happens to every single human being who's ever born. And let's prepare for this, you know, prepare for it um, psychologically and spiritually. Um, you know, say goodbye to the people we need to say goodbye to, make amends where those need to be made. Come to terms with our failures and our guilt[s] and all that kind of stuff, and just clear, you know, clear things out, and, and so that we really can be present for what's happening. And um, that was that was kind of what triggered the whole the whole project. Um, and once again, I've lost track of your original question, Saul. Oh
0: no, <laughs> no, 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 no problem. What? Um... Okay. No, you've answered one of one of my other questions of what what inspired you to write a book about aging, and what what's mm-hmm. intriguing to me. I'm I'm holding your book. It's titled A Season of Mystery, and the subtitle is Ten Spiritual Practices for Embracing a Happier Second Half of Life. And and I'm I'm delighted that you're writing a book that isn't about what our culture the american culture for the two of us is wanting us to embrace instead which is as you write about you know take the anti-aging supplements and do more personal growth work you know towards accomplishing more and and doing everything on the bucket list and and all of that but it's it's about it's about being happier without necessarily accomplishing more stuff in the world right? right. I mean, that, or, that's,
1: me. that's a facet of the book. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So now I remember your question, which is, what's this book about? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that's, that is what it's about. It's about, um, I felt like the, the, the myth you just talked about that the purpose of life, you know, is to try to get as much, uh, get what I want before I die is the very thing that prevents us from facing up to what's happening to us. Um, with in, in a kind of, uh, with the eyes of reality instead of fantasy, and that the fantasies continue to impede us from that. And so, that's what I'm trying to do in the book and try to offer people other ways to look at what's going on without diminishing, you know, or minimizing any of the huge challenges that are involved in all of this. And sometimes the real genuine pain and sorrow that comes with it, but that there is a way. Um, and a number of ways I think that people can, uh, it's not going to be more comfortable or even necessarily happier, but definitely more meaningful, you know, definitely um, that a person would feel as though uh, what I'm doing is worthwhile here. And it's not just marking time until I can be done with this, which you see so often in older people um, that, you know, my youthful life is over. I have no more purpose out of it. I believe there's a huge this is I think meant to be the spiritually richest time of our lives. You know, when when else do we have the time to face all these questions and like I was saying earlier, this is this is it. This is the time of preparation. Um instead we look at it as, as the time of um being shunted aside. And then we try to cling to youth because of that because the alternative seems so weak. Right. And so that's that's what the book is about.
0: Yeah. Right. And it's and it's titled A Season of Mystery. So so tell us about seasons and and I have a sense of what you mean, but but I'll ask you anyway, what do you mean when you say season of mystery?
1: Well, um I would say that anything that um shakes us out of our usual, you know, comfort zone uh that causes some kind of unasked for disruption in our life and almost immediately plunges us into a kind of obscure, you know, a sense that we can't see the path ahead all of a sudden. We think we have things all planned out and we can look ahead on our, you know, investments or our retirement plan or blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden something comes sideways at us and knocks us off our pins. There's a It's scary because you can't suddenly see what's happening um, ahead. You can't plan ahead. And for that reason alone, it becomes a mystery, you know, a time of mystery. So many different things are going on as people age. One of the biggest that I'm finding, I'm finding it increasingly hard to bear. In this last year uh, alone, I've been through, and my husband and I have been through, seven major deaths. You know, and it's not just older people. Yeah, it's not older people um, totally. It's been, we just went to a funeral a couple weeks ago of a woman our own age. And um, we went to another funeral of a family who lost their 19-year-old daughter in a freak camping accident, you know. And uh, so suddenly it seems like death is everywhere right now for us. Um, That's just how it happens sometimes. But um, I find that I'm missing people, you know and i realized okay if i live another 20 years which i easily could do that's a lot more people i'm going to be missing how am i going to handle that this kind of ongoing low level sorrow about those whose faces i'd love to see and voices i'd love to hear and they're not here anymore they're not physically present anymore that's a mysterious kind of thing to me <laughs> you know i have no control over that all i all i can do is um try not to be afraid of that mystery, I guess. I think that's, that's the biggest goal. can't control what's going to happen, but to try not to become terrorized when suddenly we're no longer in an arena that we know well and we know we can do well in. This this adventure ahead is going to... I even hesitate to use the word adventure because it sounds a little too um, perky. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it sounds a little too optimistic. It's the kind of word that you're going to hear from those life coaches, you know. So, it, yeah, and, but in the sense that it's going to pit us against ourselves and against um, the unknown, uh, That that is a kind of strange adventure. And um, so, and then the word season, I think that can be an overused word too. But I do think this is a particular time in human life and that if all goes normally, people do ultimately enter that that particular period of life, um, which I really do believe is meant to be a, a, a period of pretty intense spiritual uh, reflection, you know, a chance to look back before we are hit with dementia or something, uh, where we can look back kind of over a whole lifespan and with some, you know, with uh, what Thanksgiving for what we have had, with uh, whatever sorrow and regret we have over what we might have, you know, inadvertently ruined in a relationship, um, all that kind of stuff is, uh, is for that time of life, I think.
0: Right. And, and I, I really appreciate the, the thought, I mean, you, you didn't say it quite in these words, but you, you said essentially that leading a meaningful life is more important than leading a happy life. And correct me mm. if, if if I'm wrong, but that's the that's the sense that I'm getting that that as as a world, we have been drawn to looking for happiness, mm-hmm. but but meaning goes a lot deeper than than whether we're oh, happy yeah. or not.
1: And and our definition of happy is so, you know, uh, <laughs> and it's it's a gigantic nebulous term and. It's come to kind of mean for us Americans in this particular time that we're in, I think it's come to mean, okay, I'm happy if I have a sense of financial security, if I am surrounded by beautiful things, um, you know, I have my own uh, lovely place to live. I'm able, I have enough resources to travel and do whatever I want to do, you know, I have Good kids. Now, all of that; those are some really legitimate things to feel grateful for. Um, they're 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 legitimate blessings. But what happens to the person who, for whatever reason, has worked hard all his life and hasn't been able to achieve those things? You know, has in some way or another become disabled or become you know, crunched by the 2008 recession to the point where he or she's lost everything. I mean, it's too easy with that as the standard for happiness to um, find oneself not measuring up and therefore unhappy. Um, And so if that's going to be our measuring stick, this kind of conglomerate of, you know, uh, so-called successes and um, certain amount of positions and stuff like that, then I think we're sort of doomed, you know, ultimately. And even people who do achieve what looks to be, you know, the most, successful and uh, interesting and enviable kinds of lives are kind of famously not happy. (laughs) You know, look at our celebrities, I mean, people with endless amounts of um, options and choices because of all the money they have, could do anything they want to do, are kind of startlingly unhappy. Uh, So I think looking at happiness as a goal is kind of a recipe for disaster, and that's almost, um, what, heresy in our culture. You know, We it's right there in our, our pursuit of happiness is a right that we have. I think, That's though, right. instead, mm-hmm. yeah, it really is. And it's enshrined. And then everything about our economic system is based on convincing us that I have something here that will make you happy. All you need to do is purchase it from me, you know. So we're bombarded, bombarded all the time by messages that happiness is what we should be striving for, and here's how to get it. Um, And I think a whole different way to look at life is, and I think it's a much more realistic way, is that in any life, there is going to be deep sorrow at points. There's going to be, it's almost a given, there's going to be tragedy that happens. Um, And so how, out of suffering, you know, those periods of suffering, how did those become part of a, a, a life that has you know, genuine, uh, meaning like where we can feel like this life I've lived somewhere or another, um, has been a worthwhile life, you know, it's in some way or another contributed to, you know, this world being a different and, and a, a better place than it would have been without my existence here, even if it's a very small, anonymous, humble existence, you know, we've, we've added to the store of love in this world and, I just read a really interesting, somebody sent it to me, an interesting piece, and I can't remember if it was an actual essay or a blog post or something, but it was written by a guy who had just buried his father or mother who he'd been caring for for a long time. It was difficult, you know, difficult enterprise. Anybody who's been a an intimate caregiver for someone who's dying knows just how draining that can be and how you just long for the point at which you'll finally be relieved from those duties. And he said, he emerged from that experience wanting to tell the world, look, unlike what we hear all the time, I don't want to be a burden to my children when I get old. He says, I'm announcing right now, I want to be a burden. (laughs) I want to be a burden because I've discovered what I learned from this really grueling, experience of taking care of my dying parent, that my capacity for love was so much larger than I knew it was, you know. I didn't know I had the stores of patience that I suddenly had, you know. All these things, he said, I learned about myself, and the only way I could have learned those things was by being immersed in this really difficult, arduous task of caring for another being. The other thing, he said, is I learned how much I loved my parent. you know. Um, and all of that comes from not striving for the kind of um, oh comfortable happiness that we so often think about in America, but instead a, a kind of self-sacrifice that releases in us virtue we didn't even know was there. You know. Right. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and it goes back to right. It goes back to meaning. I, I remember reading somewhere that during times of war. With all the uncertainty and all the fear um, people were more alive
1: oh yes, I totally agree with that, yeah, uh, somebody else, I think it was um maybe it was a the Protestant theologian named Andy crouch um, who's written some wonderful books, but I think his point is that human beings are neither meant to live in the wilderness nor in theme parks. Now the wilderness, in the sense you know the the wilderness in the sense of true wilderness, where there's where you're you're reduced to living like an animal, you know finding foraging for food in the forest with nothing you know that's we can't we can't flourish under that condition we have to have some level of culture available to us to have any kind of life that flourishes on the other hand, a theme park existence is going to kill our souls, you know we're made for the challenges that life dishes to us. Um we have huge capacities we know don't know anything about, so like you say we're in a state of war. I mean, we don't want that to happen. Those are not things we would ask for ourselves, but they're they are over and over have proven to be the kind of cer- the kind of crucibles that produce saints. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's amazing um right. what people can yes. ri- rise to. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes. Um, so for the, you know, when, when people realize that, that seeking fulfillment, you know, in happiness, in, in our material world of pleasures is ultimately not fulfilling. I'm wondering if you can help me tie this to the practices in the book. For those, those listeners who aren't familiar, um, with the book, it is divided, um, into ten chapters, and each one can be a meditation. It can be um, can lead to a spiritual practice. Um, people can discuss this in groups. There are questions at the end of the book for contemplation and, and group discussion. But they, these chapters have titles like Listening, Delighting, Lightening, Settling, Confronting, Accepting, Appreciating, Befriending, Generating, and Blessing. So I'm wondering if you can speak to how meditating on the ideas behind these words and living them can help people to get beyond you know i guess the wake up call that that we all get when we realize all this fulfillment that we've sought and even if we've gotten it is not going to prepare us for you know for death
1: yeah well i i um decided to uh, you know you offer these practices because I've found in my life as an oblate, a monastic oblate, that one of the real keys to um, what seems to happen to people when they take up a serious monastic life like the monks have, a lifetime commitment to this, is um, it's not so much the thoughts they sit, sit around thinking about or the discussions they have about how they should be or, you know, what they would like to be like or whatever. It's just the daily practices um, that they engage in. It's what they do on a daily basis that determines, and we all have them. I mean, we all have a whole series of habitual practices that we engage in from the way we brush our teeth in the morning, you know, to how we habitually greet somebody behind the counter at Albertsons, you know, <laughs> um, we have a way of being in the world that very often repeats itself over and over and over again, and so um the great treasure I think of monastic wisdom is that it's in our habits that that's where the key to total transformation takes place. <laughs> you know if our habits begin we can begin to recognize first of all recognize what our habits are consciously decide to um, abandon the one or ones that is that might be impeding us in this quest to become a better human being and then adopt new habits. You can't just abandon old ones and not replace them. You need to replace them with something and of course there's this all kinds of ancient practices that come out of monasticism that are meant to be the replacement habits for the ones you're giving up. So, if, for example, just um, practical um, example might be a person whose habit is to um, drink three glasses of wine after dinner every night, not concerned about being an alcoholic or anything like that. They really are into that practice. Well, monastic wisdom would say, take a look at that. What is, what's that habit um, accomplishing in your life? And I mean, almost invariably what it is, it's a, it's a, The hoped-for result of those three glasses of wine is a lessening of anxiety and stress in someone's life who's really, really busy. So monastic wisdom would say, all right, instead of try tonight, instead of having those three glasses, have one glass, you know, and then go take a walk in the dark with your flashlight, you know, or sit in a rocking chair and rock for a while or Pick up a piece of reading that can, you know, poetry, that can soothe your mind or whatever. A deal, In other words, deal with what the need is that's calling to you, but do it in a way that's going to actually build you as a person instead of slowly diminish you or enslave you. Um, so that's kind of the background to why I would offer practices that um, sound like the ones you just read off. So, for example, the practice of listening, um, I think one thing I really was aware of in myself, all my life I've been kind of a go-getter, you know, I was oldest of five kids, um, I married the oldest of five kids guy, together we have done all kinds of giant creative projects or whatever. I'm really used to envisioning stuff and then carrying it out, which means that I'm always, I've, through most of my adulthood, I've been operating on a pre-planned agenda. You know, this is stuff I want to get done today and and that means I'm very directed and very focused and I'm a really hard worker. What I'm discovering as I begin to get older and, and also among the older people I know who are genuinely doing a good job at getting older is they've let go of that. They're... They're um, it's kind of like they've taken the car out of drive and they've put it into neutral. (laughs) They're just they're 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 letting that kind of willpower that pushes us forward all it's constantly into new territory. Instead, they're just paying attention to what's going on, much more um, much more intently than they and intentionally than they've done before. And I've found for myself, if I'm able to do that, if I'm able to consciously let go of the, you know, forward motion and just let the gears spin for a while and really attend to what's happening, and I use the term listening to describe that, it's really interesting what is unfolding all around me that I haven't been able to see because I've been too directed or focused on my own, on my own things. And um, so that that's one practice. Um, delighting, I think one of the curses of old age for those not just the older people but the people who have to live with them is often a kind of curmudgeonliness you know kind of grouchy irritability that comes um, as the world keeps changing so rapidly and they've lost touch with um or you know it seems like life has passed them by or whatever, and so they have nothing good to say about young people or, you know, whatever's happening out there, um, they're very negative And so delighting is a kind of, um, practice to just like deliberately look for, you know, look for what is, um, beautiful around you that you might be missing in the midst of your negative diatribes about politics or whatever. Um, Boy, for me, it has been, you know, the blessing of being in the presence of little tiny children. There's, you know, that's a natural place to delight. And yet, often older people don't really want to be around little kids because they say they're too noisy or they, you know, energetic or whatever. But taking time to really look at that beautiful skin and those bright eyes of a little child is a moment of sheer delight. If you allow yourself to, to think about it that way and to have it. Um, lightning is an kind of an obvious one. It's the whole business of shedding possessions. Um, and not just possessions, but also self-imposed obligations that might, you might have, you know, tried to meet for years and years. In my case, it was a 300-plus person Christmas card list. <laughs> and I mean, That can take... You know, we used to get something like that out. (laughs) And a long time ago, that was one of the first things I let go when I became an obli, was just, wait a minute, start looking at the things that uh, we can quietly just let let go from our lives. And the sense of burdens being lifted off is almost, you know, palpable. You really, you begin to see how much of the daily stress of living has come from self-imposed obligations or... The fact that just have not taken the time or had the time or allowed ourselves the time to really begin to look through the mountains of things stuffed in the closets and under the beds and <laughs> in the drawers, you know the accumulation we didn't even mean to accumulate it, but there it is, and now that it's there, it's our responsibility so um that's a that practice for me in particular was very easy for a lot of people. It's just excruciating they their possessions feel to them like their attachment to people or to the past, and really difficult for them to let go um, so you know, I salute people that are like that who are naturally sentimental who still go through this conscious process process of lightning because the point is at the end we have nothing. we go out of the world the way we came into it, you know right, and someone else someone else has to deal with our possessions if we don't deal with them first. Um, the no. business. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. You no, were no, going to no. say something. No, no. Go, go ahead. i just talking about um, settling was next on the list, and settling for me is another version of taking the car out of drive and letting the gears spin. Um, I think one of the attributes of youth is that we're constantly we're constantly seeing the possibilities. You know, it's and that's natural and that's the way we're made. And so I remember we used to take trips sometimes. We'd go on long cross-country camping trips and we'd go through these beautiful little towns and various places and I would always pick up a real estate magazine, (laughs) you know, even though we were very happy where we were, but I could not help but look at what the possibilities were and kind of dream about them. We'd even go look at some, drive past some houses on the list just to see and I would Try out that life in my mind, you know. What would we have to do? To live here for a year or do this or take this job somewhere else or whatever. I think with another way to make old age easier is to simply say, this is it. I'm here. <laughs> you know, I'm here. My, my roots are already in, in this place. And now I'm going to see how I'm going to appreciate the richness of having those roots rather than um, this kind of constant romantic quest for something better, you know. Right. And, uh, yes, that and, makes sense.
0: Yes, and yeah, I'm, I'm yes, yeah, settling was an interesting chapter for me because that is so antithetical to what our world tells us, you know, especially, you know, as we get older, it's the bucket list that we have to travel mm-hmm. around the world and maybe live in, in different cultures, because we're not going to be here forever, so we have to have bigger and bigger adventures. Mm-hmm. And and I'm personally at, at at this point in my life more interested in how can I let go of control and how can I let go of the zillions of desires mm-hmm. that 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 can certainly be a distraction from from living and connecting to to something. Deeper. So let me ask you, so you, you've, you've talked about four of these 10 practices. How would you recommend that, that someone use this book? You know, would they, would they read a chapter and, and meditate on it for a month and try some things? What, what, what do you think? Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a good question. I don't know that I've even really thought about that. My, um, my assumption is that people would probably, would probably move through it kind of slowly because I think each, each one of the practices, I mean, it's easy, it's a short little book, like what, 120 pages, so it's, and it's a pretty, I think, accessible read, so it's not like it should take you that long to whiz through it, but I think in the spirit of the book itself, it probably will do more for a person if they can really sit with these practices for a while, try, you know, maybe try them for a while, Um, see what happens before moving on to try something else. And uh, I guess that would be the best way to do it, I I really think. Um, I've found that uh, some people who've written me, you know, readers who've bought it and written me about it have said they have found a good way to do this is to do it with a friend you know so so several people are reading it at the same time and they meet and talk about it over coffee and nothing formal but just you know some way to bounce the ideas off because for me having been an Oblate for so long and and having hung around with monks for so many years at this point this seems all really natural to me it it doesn't strike me as Sort of jarringly alternative <laughs> way to, to approach all this, but I I have to realize over and over again a lot of people have never received permission not to have a bucket list before. You know, they've never um, thought about this in this particular way. So yeah, I think I think taking time with it would be a very important thing to do.
0: Yes, I mean that, that that's that's my sense from from reading the book. As, as I want to go back and read a chapter and meditate on the chapter and live the chapter and, and see where, what it opens up before going on to one of the other chapters. And I'm not sure that I would do them in order. I think with, with my personality, I might just pick one that calls to me.
1: And yeah, that's, that's fine. And that you know, none of them are meant to be any more significant than others. I mean, that's just the way the list came out. But, um, they don't necessarily have to be done in order, and I would say that's a good plan, too, just to see what speaks to you. I mean, that's part of this whole business of becoming more, slowing down, divesting ourselves of as many obligations, possessions, responsibilities as we possibly can, all in service of becoming more open and aware to what's happening to us in the spiritual sense. Um, And so the... You know, this business of really seeing, what is it that's calling to me right this minute? You know, it's funny how many people will say to me that the chapter on lightning is something that just really hits them where they live. They realize that they have avoided that that task for years and years and years. And now it's so overwhelming to them that they don't even know where to start, you know. Right. So they go straight to that chapter.
0: Yes, I, I I can relate to that. I I was drawn to that chapter, and I have started to give things away. I I recently mm-hmm. am, I have been a math blogger for many years, and I do interviews with people um, who write popular math books, and I've collected quite a number of them. and And I connected with a fellow who runs um, a a wonderful nonprofit. Organization around working with girls and math. And I just, oh, just a couple of weeks ago, I sent him five boxes full of books. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't miss them. I was attached no. to them when I had them, and now they've given them away. I don't miss them for mm-hmm. one second. I'm, I'm delighted to have the, the, the shelf space, um, for, for new books that come into my life. Um, which is not exactly about lightning, but at least it's about, Circulating,
1: <laughs> it's a step. Yeah, exactly. Sure, you're not. You're no longer keeping it for yourself indefinitely. You know, just that act of sharing something that's valuable to you um, with someone else for however long. You know, that's. I don't know. I think that's how we're meant to live, and we can feel that when we do stuff like this. You, you, you sound. Um, and that when you know, going back to the subject of happiness, I would call it. I think the real thing we're after is joy. And joy is different. Joy is really deep, you know, and it comes, almost completely comes out of living a loving life, living a life of, you know, that has a certain amount of self-sacrifice in it. That's the source of joy, of of something much deeper than what we would refer to as happiness.
0: Ah, okay. So now you're leading t- into, you read my mind, into the the, the next question. And, 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 and you've talked about this throughout the interview but i want to see if i can can get you to to distill it um so remember in the beginning of the interview i i read it um, something from your book where where you say the purpose of life or this is one of the myths that Mm -hmm. the purpose of life is to get what i most want before i die i'm wondering if you can Mm -hmm. speak to that and to the you know the the more important question is in, in your view what is the purpose of life
1: yeah. Well, the the first statement, you know, that the purpose of life is to get what I most want before I die, it um, that posits uh, somehow that the meaning of life is centered on desire and the, you know, and um, satisfaction of desire, no matter what that desire is. Um, the great philosophical traditions like, you know, Socrates, Socrates began, and the whole Platonic view of life, the Aristotelian view of life, all of those were um, an attempt to show that there's a different and more um, worthwhile, more meaningful way to look at life than that just the satisfaction of our desires. And in fact, that the quest to satisfy desires very often leads us into catastrophe, and not leads us into adultery you know it's one obvious place it can lead us it can lead us into addiction you know so that isn't that traditionally in in western culture has never been the path to true genuine joy it's not been through the satisfaction of desire our entire society now is built however on that business of desire satisfaction want satisfaction so the alternative i think would be The purpose of life is to live it as well as I possibly can to become the best human being I can be. You know, in Christianity, it would be to, um, undergo a transformation of my life such that I'm as Christ-like as possible. Um, and, and, you know, you can go through all the world religions and see the same, the same movement, you know, in Buddhism, it's to become enlightened, which means to become more like the Buddha, less less hampered by our desires and our wants and all this constant longing for things that never satisfy. It's to move beyond that to become, you know, as, as, uh, Aristotle would say a fully flourishing human being, uh, which meant virtuous, you know, it meant a person to become a person of integrity and of, um, great honesty and great love and compassion for others and courage and all those old virtues that we rarely speak about anymore in our culture. Um one of the I think I mentioned it in the book somewhere, one of my best friends at the Hermitage, um, Father Bernard, a little French Canadian monk verse one I ever met when I went up there, and uh, he died a couple years ago at the age of about eighty five. But he a long time ago, someone came to interview him from a newspaper, and uh, re- the reporter said, "Why would you become a monk? Why would you take on a life like this?" And he just very quickly answered back. He said, "Well, life is short, and I wanted to live it as well as I possibly could."
0: Right. That that is in the why book. I'm here. Yes.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and it's hard, you know, to talk about what it means to to live well. puts us in that whole realm of um, like I say, virtue, vice, um you know moral strength, moral weakness all all the kind of language that we are we're increasingly uh unfamiliar with, except as it comes out in you know kind of simplistic black and white political angry discourse uh that's our only and yet we're all still deeply moral people that's a huge. Um, aspect of who, it's what makes us human is our, our need for things to be good and to be right and our longing for goodness. But right now we're living through an odd time where we've, we've lost that tradition. And, um, things have just become simply black and white. That's not how it is in the, in the moral realm. It's a very nuanced, complex kind of thing. Human beings are complex creatures. Uh, but if there's something to aim at, you know, something that transcends simply our wants, that's what gives life meaning. That's what it does make it into some kind of odd adventure. <laughs> so I hope that answers your question.
0: Yes, it, it it does. And it you know, it it very much ties into I I'm, I'm 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 in a phase in my life where I'm doing a lot of reading, you know, from from different spiritual um mm-hmm. traditions and, and, and of course at at some core level they all say the same thing.
1: They yeah. do, yeah. There's very very much and the, the one the dissenter it has been um a kind of uh, focus, um a a hedonist philosophy that's based simply on pleasure. That's that's where it really diverges from what all the great traditions have always said about what makes a worthwhile, meaningful, fulfilled life and um, unfortunately, we've got into the the hedonist vision right now.
0: Right, The hed- hedonism and and also narcissism has become. Oh gosh, you, yeah, you know, just just everywhere in in our world. Um, let me ask you one other question, one other um, important question, and then and then I've got one question after that to to tie up this this, this interview. Um how do you personally feel about the reality that that you're going to die someday?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody's ever asked me that in an interview before, and that's a completely fair question, you know. There's someone telling everybody else to get busy and prepare for death, but how am I doing that? And you know, I I what's been more difficult for me than thinking about my own death, um has been thinking about the death of relationships or the loss of relationships through death. So um, when I visualize old age, for one thing, my husband is 10 years older than me and based on, you know, every statistic around, I will no doubt be outliving him. So I what I think about when I think of death is the prospect of widowhood and how am I going to handle that? Um, I think about... You know, my little grandkids growing up and moving far away to go to college, not having not having access to their lively spirits and being possibly unable to drive anymore so that I have to wait for people to come to me. I won't be able to hold my doors open like I always have and feed people around my table. All that goes through my mind as more uh, scary for me, you know, and uh, the thing that I really need to prepare for spiritually than really thinking about my actual physical death. Um, I'm not really scared of that. At least I haven't ever, um, you know, as a young person, I definitely was. But as I've come through life and seen death over and over again now, it doesn't frighten me so much. It's um, sort of like when I was pregnant and, you know, chose to have my babies without any drugs because I wanted to know what it felt like. <laughs> so I was curious about it. It was hard, you know, very very hard to have a baby that way. But I'm glad I went through the pain that attends, you know, labor because it made the baby all that more precious. And so I'm really not not dwelling too much on that physical process of dying um or the leaving leaving this life. It's uh it's more about how am I going to live well during those times where my loved ones may not be around anymore to help me through that, you know. Um, I, some years ago I had a brief but scary, um, uh, with possible cancer and I chose not to tell anybody about that. I don't know if I would do that now. I was probably 42 years old when it happened. And, uh, While I was waiting for the test results to come back, I had, you know, some up-close personal (laughs) um, conversations with the prospect of dying, And, uh, and I realized at that time, I thought, well, 42 sounds so young, you know, to people in our time. That just sounds like you're practically just out of childhood, but I thought, 42 years is a long time to have been around, you know? In another era, I would have this would have been old age in many countries mm. in the world right now. Yes. It still is mm-hmm. old age, mm. you know yes. I mean, just to think that this same body is still working after forty two years on the planet, that's incredible. I have had a great run, and I realize right then I do not have any regrets I don't have a great sorrow about leaving I, as a Christian, I also believe you know that life's not over and um I and mean, then I have no clue what happens after after physical death, I'm just, um, not afraid of that. Um, I, I know whatever happens is going to be a good thing. It might be real hard getting from A to B, you know, (laughs) might be some tough stuff to go through to get there, but I, I don't, I'm not concerned about that part of it. I don't know if that answers your question or not.
0: Yes, it, it it does. And I, and I very much appreciate your, your sincerity and, and your humility in answering the the question it 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 certainly helps me and i'm sure that that your answer helps a lot of people who will be listening to this because it is taboo in our culture to ask people well how do you feel about dying right Mm -hmm. it's it's and it's part of um but but you know you know since i i sent you the questions in advance and, and gave you the you know the the power to say no you can strike that question i knew that that you would be okay um with the question but even even under those circumstances a lot of people won't go there and risk asking the question because it's not something that we talk about in public or with with people that we're not intimate friends with so right. but but it's a very important conversation and i have done some volunteer work um, around hospice, and and I had an experience of being with a woman when she died, and and there was no drama. She just stopped mm-hmm. breathing. It took me a minute or two to realize that okay, I think she really is gone. Yeah. Um, but it, but it's I I feel it's really important to to not run away from from that conversation of of, of how how we really feel about death. Mm hmm. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So then so so thank you for that. And then, then my final question is um I think this one's this one's a bit lighter. Um lightening I am lightening the questions is um so so you said early in the or earlier in the interview and it sure feels like we've covered a lot of ground in, in only about an hour, um that you're someone who likes to take on um Lots of projects and, and 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 you also said that that you're willing to to look at that and and maybe even consider um, slowing down, but um, I'm wondering is there a next book is there a next project what is what is next for you
1: well I uh, actually I have officially been on a year of sabbatical, which is now officially over, and um, the sabbatical mostly entailed uh, not taking on any new book contracts. Um, you know because for the last ten years, I've been writing all spiritual books after my novel came out in ninety five um I wrote a second novel which didn't get published, and then shortly after that, I wound up being asked to start doing spiritual nonfiction, so I can't remember what seven books or something and it's been a lot <laughs> I've been working pretty hard in these last ten years and um but i well, I was off for the sabbatical. I and I was being very good about not signing contracts or I stopped all public speaking during that year and just focused. I, I do have my students, you know, from the MFA program. But I received a call from an editor friend who said, Paula, do you have any novels laying around anywhere? And I said, novels? I haven't written fiction in years. And he said, well, I know you used to write it all the time. So he said, I'm starting a new literary imprint with um, a publisher who's already well established and he said we want to bring five novels out in the next two years and so if you've got one, please send it to me. Well, long and short of it is I have a novel coming out August 1st <laughs> from this this new literary imprint which is called Splant Books and the name of my novel, uh, which is much bigger than A Season of Mystery. It's about 350 pages long and it's uh, called A Land Without Sin, and it's set in Chiapas, New, uh, Mexico, and also Guatemala in 1993 on the eve of the Zapatista Revolution. Mike and I happened to be down there when that happened, and uh, so it's about a young priest who disappears from, American priest who disappears, and his sister, who's a photojournalist, who is very much a um, kind of a hardened, you know, cynical person who's done a lot of war zone work over the years. She comes to shopus to see if she can find him and, and she takes a job working for a um an archaeologist a Mayanist who, who uh is on a quest of his own and has his own family and so it's an it's a uh, kind of a double almost a double Mystery going. One is where is this priest and is he alive? And the other one is what is this lioness trying to figure out and his snooping around all these tombs with this hired photographer. So that's the plot of the book. And I'm it's been so fun to work on fiction again after all these years. And I'm I'm hoping I'll get a chance to do a couple more novels after this. You know, because it's been a great time. So well, yeah, that's it. Well, that, <laughs> that's exciting. That. But one thing I'm confused
0: about, so this, was was this the book that you wrote that, that was not yes, published? Yes,
1: it, it was. It was uh, the book I originally wrote it back in 1996 or 7. Um, yeah, my first novel came out in 95, and so I began working on this book right after. And at the time, it was under contract to Random House. And, um, you know, it was still a, not a good time for... Um, anybody with uh who's speaking in any way about religion uh seriously to approach or have a New York publisher involved they just were not doing that back then, and so I think that they reached, they didn't want to publish the book because it was about this priest and um you know and now once i was asked whether I had a book laying around and dredged it out of the shelf where it had been sitting all those years all dust-covered and, you know, in this Kinko's box with spider webs in it, I realized it was also not complete at that time. But they didn't like it enough to go through the editing work it would have taken to bring it up to snuff, and so they just let it go. Well, the new editor uh, really loved the story and did a tremendous helpful editing job on it by just asking me the right questions. And so the book itself has really transformed since that original novel. But it was very, very, um, you know, it felt like a real blessing to have that book, which I would worked so hard on all those years ago finally now come, come into print. So, that, that, yeah, kind of an in- interesting tale there. <laughs> that, that, is,
0: that is really delightful and I, and I can't help but chuckling a little bit at at the idea that even when you were on sabbatical, you produced now, a book. I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a, I know that's hard for. I I've really worked hard at slowing down. I've really enjoyed slowing down, and I intend to not go back to doing certain things, even though my sabbatical's over. I'm no longer doing certain kinds of speaking stints and things like that to try to hold more time open. But um, the two things I know that I'll probably never stop doing until old age finally shuts me down it would be writing and uh if i can to remain in you know teaching these wonderful grad students i only have five students a year mentoring them is just really really um uh just a real satisfying kind of thing for me to do i love seeing a younger generation come up you know who are going to be the writers of the future so yeah that's <laughs> no, that's, it's,
0: no, it's a, it's a really delightful, right? There's a little right, a little bit of joyful irony in in that last um, story. So I think I think it's a wonderful note um, to end on. And congratulations, August first, okay. you said is that your book, August first, your book, will, yeah. be, will be in print. And and I want to mention for for listeners who want to go to your website, I have been careful to pronounce. Your, your name correctly, but people need to know that, that Houston in your case is spelled H U S T O N without that, the O before the U so that when people go looking for your website, they can go to Paula Houston again, P A U L A H U S T O N.com. And, and I'm, and I imagine that your new book will be um, listed there as well, along with a number of your other books and some biographical Information and there's a nice video interview. I think was it in the media? Yes, in the media kit section. I'm looking here. There's a a nice little video um, view so people can see what you look like, and that's always a nice way to connect with people.
1: Well, very good. Thank you so much, Paul. I really, really appreciate appreciate the depth of the questions. You know, um, I think it's great that you are asking. These kind of questions and, and getting these kinds of conversations going because um, you know we just like you say we don't ta- we don't talk about this stuff enough and right. we need to so I think you're doing a great job here very and, good uh, All right. appreciate it
0: very good thank you
1: you're welcome.